It was back in 1995 when a friend of mine ended up becoming a believer, and he became a believer through an apologetic ministry which was being broadcast on cable access here in Austin, Texas. Now, the guys who produced that program, they spent their Friday nights inviting Austinites to call into the station during the live show, and they allowed these people to, to present their questions concerning the Christian faith. And while some called in with honest questions, they uh, you know, called in with their you know, questions about this or that uh, when it comes to the Christian faith, why this or why that, and the uh, Christian answer guys would provide answers to those honest questions. But then there were also those who would call in with their arguments. And they would call in and try to present their reasons for why they were rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And in response, the Christian Answers team, well, they would earnestly contend for the Christian faith as they presented a reasonable response to all of those arguments. I praise the Lord for those guys, and one reason why is because they were able to lead my friend Mike to the Lord. Mike then started using the apologetic arguments that he was learning to turn around and evangelize his friends, including myself. And Mike started presenting me with arguments for the Christian faith. And, you know, I I put up a little bit of of a fight because I had my reasons for rejecting the Christian faith. And yet he was able to deal with every single question that I had. He was able to respond to every argument that I presented. And as a result, well, I ended up coming to the realization that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is backed up by the historical facts. And after repenting of my sins and placing my faith in Jesus Christ, that's when Mike and I, we started spending our Friday nights at the cable access channel here in Austin, Texas, as we helped to run the cameras there on the Christian Answers program. And as a brand new believer, you know, I was sitting there running the cameras for this show, and and at the same time, I'm just soaking it all in. I'm just listening to questions and arguments against the Christian faith, and I'm hearing these guys presenting their reasonable answers, and I was just quickly learning more and more about the incredible evidence that helps us to earnestly contend for the Christian faith, and that's my encouragement to every believer here this morning, that we should learn how to earnestly contend for the Christian faith. Here in our text today, we find Jude. He's helping his audience to understand how believers should earnestly contend for the Christian faith. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that we're able to fight for the faith with the word of God. Secondly, we'll learn that we're able to fight for our faith with the wisdom of God. And thirdly, we'll consider how we fight for the faith through the worship of God. Well, with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to the book of Jude. And here we find Jude. He's helping his audience to learn how to fight for our faith. And as you make your way to the little book of Jude, I just want to take a moment to set the stage for our study today. And I want to take a moment to point out that Jude was a man who was concerned about the spiritual health of the church. He was concerned about the spiritual health of Christians there in the first century. And knowing that there were, there were already wolves in sheep's clothing who were creeping into the church, Well, Jude took the time to pen this little epistle in order to warn the church about those who were turning the grace of God into lewdness as they denied our Lord Jesus Christ. And with this context in mind, let's consider the instructions that Jude presented, beginning there at verse 17. 
Here Jude declares, You, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Now here in the final verses of this epistle, we find Jude. He's uh, turning our attention from the why we should contend earnestly for the faith to the how we should do it. You see, the first half of this letter was all about the reasons for why we ought to earnestly contend for the faith. And that's even what he commands us to do, to earnestly contend for the faith, which was once and for all delivered to the saints. And one reason for why we should do this is because false teachers have crept in unnoticed and they've turned the grace of God into lewdness. Not only that, but the same false teachers have denied the only Lord and God and and our Lord Jesus Christ. And and these false teachers are defiling the flesh. They're rejecting authority and they're speaking evil of dignitaries. And Jude explains all of this in the first half of this epistle. At the same time, he tells us that they're following in the footsteps of Balaam as they greedily make merchandise of believers. And and while there are lots and lots of reasons for why we should contend for the faith, I think we all realize that this morning, that, that, that we are Christians who have been called to contend or fight for our faith. The question is how? How should we go about this? How should we earnestly contend for the faith? Well, I'm glad you asked. And I'm glad that Jude actually takes the time here to provide us with the basic tools that we need so that we can go out into the world and defend our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, with this as the goal, let's take another look here, beginning at verse 17. Here again, Jude declares, But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now, remember, Jude's already told them, Hey, you need to contend for the faith. How do we do that? Well, let's first remember the words that the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ have already presented. Our defense of the faith ought to begin with the word of God. And listen, I get it. There's some you know, wonderful apologists out there, big name apologists who love to ar- argue from uh, the point of philosophy. They love to argue from a point of logic or from a point of history, and they'll point you to all this extra-biblical information, which in and of itself isn't necessarily bad. But our apologetic needs to begin with the Bible. We need to begin with the Word of God. Our defense of the faith should begin with the words which were presented by the apostles of Christ Jesus. And just to be clear, Jude was referring to the words that the apostles presented as they went out to establish the Christian church there in the first century. And as they did this, they were preaching the doctrines of the Lord Jesus Christ that were given to them by the Holy Spirit of promise. And and while it's true that the apostles 
were initially presenting these doctrines through the spoken word, through the rhema, through, through, uh, you know, through preaching in the pulpits, we have to understand that these doctrines are now found in the New Testament books, which help us now to earnestly contend for the faith. We don't have the apostles now today preaching from the pulpit, but we do have their doctrine in the word of God. When it comes to our evangelistic endeavors, which includes the defense of the faith, we need to begin with the word of God. And to understand why, listen, I want to consider something that Paul says in Romans chapter 10. It's beginning at verse 14. There he asks this. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report, so then faith comes by hearing And hearing by what? By the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Listen, as we go out to preach the gospel of grace, we would do well to make sure that our message is centered in the word of God. And if you want to help unbelievers to come to faith in Jesus Christ, then we must begin by presenting them with the truth of God's word, which was presented first by the apostles. And more specifically, we should present them with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And the reason why? It's because the gospel of Christ Jesus is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel message of Jesus Christ is the power that provides people with the faith to believe in Jesus Christ so that they can be saved. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Just to be clear, Paul sums up the gospel message just, to, just so that we're on the same page regarding the gospel message. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There he declares, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, as we consider the way that Paul sums up the gospel message here in 1 Corinthians 15, we must not fail to notice the phrase that he uses twice. It's found in verses 3 and 4, and it's there in verse 3 where Paul tells us that Christ died according to the scriptures. And in verse 4, he tells us that Jesus was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. So you can sum up the gospel by saying, hey, Jesus died for our sins on the cross. He was buried and then he rose again from the grave. That is a summation of the gospel message. But Paul takes it out further and says, according to the scriptures. And in this way, he's pointing back to the Old Testament. He's pointing to the word of God. And he's saying, hey, there's there's so much more 
information in the Old Testament about these things that Jesus fulfilled. The gospel message by which we are saved has been revealed all throughout the pages of the Old Testament scriptures. And just to be clear, this not only includes the, the, the simple gospel presentation that Paul is presenting here, but, but he's, he's pointing now back, he's using this summation to point back to the messianic prophecies that the Lord revealed throughout the ages there in the pages of the Old Testament scriptures. You might not know this, but according to one count... The Old Testament actually contains at least 350 messianic prophecies which reveal the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And listen, when we know, when when we use these prophecies, when we present people with this information from the Old Testament, when we help them to see how God presented us with this information years before Jesus was born here to the Virgin Mary, when we present people with this information, it is incredible to see how people begin to realize that this was not just some random accident. This wasn't just some made-up thing. This wasn't something that Jesus, you know, set out to try to accomplish in, in the power of his own flesh after the fact. No, we have at least 350 messianic prophecies that we can prove were written prior to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and we can show how Jesus Christ then fulfilled these things with biblical and extra-biblical information. And I'm here to tell you, I was overwhelmed by this information when my buddy Mike began to, to present me with all of this information, it was overwhelming to realize that these things were written before the life of Jesus Christ. And they were fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. And when you take all of the Old Testament scriptures that include these 350 Messianic prophecies and show how Jesus fulfilled all of these things, it's mathematically overwhelming. And it helped me to see that this is a fact The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact. And it's for this reason that I embraced the Lord Jesus as my Messiah. As we consider all of this information, listen, this is great news, especially as we consider the best way to reach those who are still rejecting Jesus Christ is to present them with the evidence from Old Testament prophecy and their New Testament fulfillments. And yet still, there will be those who will mock our commitment to Christ. And we have to understand that. That you can go out with the best arguments and the best evidence, and still there will be those who will mock our faith in Jesus Christ. And with this as the focus, I want to consider the mockers that Jude mentions here in our text today. Let's back up and begin reading once again at verse 17. There he declares, You, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. Now, the word mockers here, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of the false teachers who were known to scoff at the doctrines that the apostles were preaching. 
And, and we find one example of the same word being used by Peter. It's in Second Peter chapter 3. There the apostle Peter, he actually uses the same word translated mockers. Uh, and in Second Peter, he talks about the scoffers. That's, it's translated scoffer here in Second Peter chapter 3. But he talks about the scoffers who will come in the last days and they're going to mock the doctrine regarding the second coming of Christ Jesus. And just as Peter promised... Well, the world is now filled with people who mock the second coming of Christ, and this is even true in the church. Yeah, there are preachers in the pulpit who mock the second coming of Christ. And it's tragic. And it's sad to say that they have churches with standing room-only capacities. We should also notice that Jude refers to those mockers as sensual people. It's there in verse 19 where he declares these are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. Now when Jude refers to these false teachers as sensual persons, he's informing us that uh, they're going to be governed by their natural and fallen instincts. They're not going to be led by the spirit because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They're not born again. Instead, they're going to be led by their feelings. They're led by their fifis. You know, they're, they're going to be led by their fleshly desires. And as a result, those who follow their teachings are going to be led astray. And it's sad to say that these sensual persons who are scoffers of the second coming, they've already infiltrated the church. And the proof of my point can be found in the study that was conducted last year by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. And according to this research, only 37%, now consider that, 37% out of 100, right? 37%, that sounds like some of my test grades back in high school, 37% of Christian pastors in the United States have a biblical worldview. Just think about that for a moment. 37% of Christian pastors in the United States have a biblical worldview. Would you say the Christian church is failing here in America? I think that's a failing grade. The same study also revealed that 62% of the pastors here in the U.S. have a predominantly, a predominantly syncretistic worldview, which is made up of extra-biblical beliefs that come from false religious systems. In other words, the lion's share, 62% of the pastors here in the U.S. have taken a little bit of the Bible, and a little bit of Buddhism, and a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and they've created their own worldview. And then they stand in the pulpit of a so-called Christian church and they lead people astray. They're scoffers. They're sensual persons. They're being led around by their feelings. And this is more than half of the churches here in America being led by apostate pastors who have crept in unaware. And one reason why is because the people they're leading don't know what the Bible says. They're biblically illiterate. Why? Because they've been sitting under biblically illiterate pastors. And listen, the biblically illiterate believer can't defend their faith, and the reason why is because they don't know how to use the sword of the Spirit to fight the good fight of faith. Just to be clear, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And listen, when it comes to the full armor that God has provided to the believer, the sword of the Spirit is used to defend our faith against the false doctrines of the enemy. 
as we consider this parallel between the word of God and this defensive sword of the spirit. I want to take a moment to point out that, you know, and, and I'm not a, an expert when it comes to swordsmanship, but uh, from everything that I could find online, it, 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 it basically takes about five years to become even just proficient using a sword. And it takes about 20 years to master it. So now let's consider the parallel here to the sword of the Spirit. How long does it take, uh, you, you know, engaging in a serious study of God's Word, how long does it take to become just proficient with the Word of God? To use it as a sword, to defend the faith. You know, how, how long does it take? Is five years unreasonable? How long does it take to become a master of God's word, to really, really know it and to be able to use it in defense of the faith? If the parallel holds true, then you know, you're looking at about a 20-year study. And listen, if it, if it takes at least five years just to be able to proficiently use the word of God, uh, five years of serious study, is it any wonder then why so few Christians are able to defend their faith? They don't know how to use the sword of the Spirit. Why? Because they've wasted all their time doing all these other things. All these, th- these things that, that amount to nothing. You know, we've got men in the church who know more about sports stats than the Word of God. We've got women in the church who, who know more about the Kardashians than Christian doctrine. There might even be men in the church who know more about the Kardashians than than, than Christian doctrine, and it's sad. We should know how to use the sword of the Spirit and forget all the rest. Those who want to earnestly contend for the faith must first learn how to use the sword of the Spirit, which takes at least five years of serious study. this as the goal, I want to consider the encouragement that Paul presented in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's verses 13 through 17 where he declares this. He says, evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Do you really believe this? And and if, if so, how careful are you when you go book shopping at the Christian bookstore? Because I guarantee you that that Christian bookstore is filled with the writings of evil men and imposters who are growing worse and worse and deceiving and being deceived. And it's for this reason that Paul goes on to tell Timothy here, he says, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, he says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for how many good works? All the good works. For every good work. Christian, listen, the believer who wants to be thoroughly equipped for every good work, which includes being able to contend for the Christian faith, well, we need to first spend time studying the scriptures because the scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation and at the same time, they're able to help us 
to, to understand how to use the sword of the Spirit as we fight the good fight of faith. You see, the Word of God contains the, the, the recorded rhema of God's words. The Word of God, it, it, it includes the scriptures that provide us with the divinely inspired instructions that we need so that we can then wield the sword of the Spirit in defense of our faith. Now, this brings us to our second point, because listen, we not only need the word of God so that we can fight for our faith, but we also need the wisdom of God in order to fight for our faith. And in order to understand the difference here, I want to continue to consider the instructions that Jude presents here in this little epistle. And so if you would, let's back up and, and let's take another look beginning at verse 20. Here Jude declares, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit... Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some, have compassion, making a distinction. But others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now here in these verses we find Jude, he's helping his audience to understand that we need godly guidance so that we can learn how to earnestly contend for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. And while this most certainly includes the the, the learning of doctrinal truths which were divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit of God and recorded within the, the word of God, listen, this also includes a need for divine wisdom. We need the wisdom that comes from divine guidance so that we might then be led by the still small voice of the indwelling spirit. That's right, we need the wisdom of divine guidance so that we can take the knowledge that we acquire from the word of God and then learn how to use that knowledge in a wise way. To explain my point, let's take a moment to consider how the Holy Spirit provides us with wisdom from within, and I want to remind you that the Holy Spirit of God is dwelling within the body of every born-again believer. I like the way that Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's verse 16 where he declares, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Incredible. The Holy Spirit of God He not only seals us into the mystical body of Christ at the moment of our conversion, but he's also taken up residence within the body of the born-again believer. And in this way, we become the temple of the living God here in the church age. At the same time, the Holy Spirit was also sent to then empower us with spiritual gifts so that we can accomplish the great commission of Christ Jesus. And listen, this includes the impartation of divine wisdom, which is needed so that we can go out and defend our faith. I want to consider the way that the Lord Jesus explains this in John chapter 16. It's verse 13 where he declares, When he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will, notice, guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. From this, we can see that the Holy Spirit not only seals the believer into the body of Christ, and the Holy Spirit not only indwells in the believer so that we can walk in the power of God, but the Holy Spirit was sent to guide the believer into all truth 
so that we can walk in the wisdom of God. And with that being the case, the believer who wants to earnestly contend for the faith, well, we need to learn how to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit as we set out to share our faith with unbelievers. Now, with this as the goal, let's take a closer look at the instructions that Jude presents here in this little epistle. And if you would, look with me there beginning at verse 20. It's there where Jude declares, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit. We build ourselves up on our most holy faith by praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, some might take this to mean that we're supposed to pray in tongues. And yet I must insist that there's nothing here about tongues. It doesn't say to pray in tongues. It doesn't say anything about the gift of tongues. It says that we're supposed to be praying in the Holy Spirit. From this, you know, I, 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 I want to consider what this means, you know. You know, what does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? If the Holy Spirit's dwelling within us, how do we pray in the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul, you know, when we consider Paul's point of view on this, he brings a little bit more information to the table in Romans chapter 8, and, and, and while some might think that Jude wants us to pray in tongues. Uh, Listen, I don't really find anything in the scriptures about praying in tongues. We do find the gift of tongues. And the gift of tongues is is supposed to be used in the context of the church, you know, where, you know, we have... uh, uh, we have maybe one, two, or three at the most to speak in tongues and, and, and one to interpret. And if there is no interpretation, then the person with the gift of tongues is supposed to keep that in the prayer closet. So, so maybe if you're in your prayer closet and, and, and maybe you have uh, you know, a, a leading of the Holy Spirit to pray in tongues, then maybe you're praying in tongues in, in, in your prayer closet. But I truly think that Jude here is really referring to something that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8. You see, it's in Romans 8 verse 26. That's where Paul declares this. He says, the spirit helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Can, can, can we utter these prayers? No. They cannot be uttered. These are groanings that happen within the believer by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's something that we can't really utter. And, and listen, this comes to our entire prayer life. You know, as we, as we sit down to pray, as we spend that time with the Lord in prayer, you know, and, and we start praying for people, and well, how do we know what to pray for? There's some times where I begin to start praying for something, and then I'm just kind of like, well, if I pray for that, then kind of a monkey paw situation where, you know, if I pray for that, then this might happen, and that might turn that. I don't know what to pray for. I don't. And so there's times when I'm just asking God to show me what to pray for. Help me to know how to pray. And this is true whenever we're praying for the salvation of those we're trying to reach, Lord. How, 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 Lord, do you want to reach these people? And how should I pray for their salvation? Lord, Please, Lord, give them cancer so that they might wake up to their need for you. Should I pray for that? Should I pray, Lord, help them to get into a car accident so that they might be paralyzed from the waist down so that in their wheelchair they might... Should I pray for that? 
Would anybody pray that prayer? What if the Holy Spirit told you to? The fact is we don't know how to pray as we ought to pray. Why? Well, because we don't really know the best way to reach the unbelievers that we're trying to reach. And with that being the case, sometimes we just need to sit there and, and, and allow the Holy Spirit to intercede for us. And don't get me wrong, because I am not suggesting that we sit there in some sort of Eastern meditation yoga pose, trying to empty our minds so that whatever you know, pops up into our imagination is fine, right? No, no, no. Don't start chanting mantras. Rick Warren was wrong. We don't need to chant repetitive mantras or empty our brains or sit in yoga positions, but we do need to sometimes sit in silence as we press into our relationship with the Lord, asking the Holy Spirit to intercede within us with groanings that cannot be uttered. And in that state of meditation, as we're seeking information from the Lord, as we're waiting on the still, small voice, the Holy Spirit will then provide us with the wisdom that we need so that we can move forward in faith. And with that, we ought to spend time praying in the Holy Spirit, allowing the Holy Spirit to minister to us as we pray. And in this way, the Holy Spirit helps us to then walk in love according to those that we're trying to reach. With that, let's back up and begin reading again at verse 20. Here again, Jude writes this. He says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Now, Christian, listen. Those who are truly being led by the Holy Spirit, as we pray in the Spirit, Well, he will help us to walk then in the love of the Lord as we continue looking for the mercy of our Messiah. And as we consider all of this in the context of evangelism, because that is the context of this book, well, it's important for us to remember that the Lord didn't call us to go out and argue with unbelievers so that we can somehow argue them into the church. A lot of Christians are just trying to argue people into the church rather than lead them to the love of the Lord. This isn't our calling. We aren't called to argue people into the kingdom. No, he's called us to reach unbelievers with the love of the Lord so that they might then receive the mercy of our Messiah unto eternal life. At the same time, listen, we should also be ready to reach people right where they are. And sometimes sometimes they need a compassionate, loving word, and sometimes they need a, a message on hellfire and brimstone. Let me prove my point. Look again there, Jude chapter 1, verse 22. Jude declares, on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Here in these verses, we find Jude encouraging Christians to make a distinction regarding our evangelistic endeavors. And what this means is that there's not a one-size-fits-all method for reaching unbelievers. Sorry, way of the master, people. You know, it's a great program, the way of the master. It's a great program for some people. How about evangelism explosion? Another great program for some people. 
But for those who come along and grab a hold of, of some of these evangelistic programs and think, this is it, this is, I'm going to lead everybody to Jesus with this one program, it's not, it doesn't work that way. It might be really beneficial for some, but not so much for others. And so it's crucial for Christians to realize that we need to go out and reach some with compassion, while others need a good old-fashioned hellfire and brimstone message. Some people need a hug, and some people need a kick in the pants. But how do I know? What do I know about it? That's where we need the wisdom of God. Because God knows. And to further explain my point, I just want to consider something that John the Baptist says in in Luke chapter 3. He's talking about preparing the way of the Lord to make uh, his path straight. And he's talking about, you know, how the road needs to be straightened out so that, you know, Jesus can come and present himself. and And this is what he says. He says, he's quoting Isaiah, and he says, Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill brought low, the crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth. Then all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now he's preparing the path for the ministry of the Messiah, but if you'll allow me a little liberty to spiritualize this text, it also seems to me here that John seems to be addressing the different ways to reach different people or the different ways to prepare people to receive the gospel message. For example, let's consider what he means by the valleys filled in and brought up, right? I like to think of that as depressed people people who are sad, people who are low, people who have a hard time believing that God would ever love them or want to save them. Those are the valley people that need to be brought up. They don't need hellfire and brimstone. They need compassion. They need help to to believe that Jesus loves them and wants to save them. In contrast to this, we find the mountains being brought low in this message of John the Baptist. And I like to consider the mountain and the hill people, and I'm not talking about you know, the people in West Virginia. I, I, I'm, I'm talking about the proud people, those who have exalted themselves, those who have placed themselves on a pedestal. Well, they need to be brought low. They need to be rebuked. They need to be brought to a place of humility so that they can receive the Lord Jesus Christ. John referred to the crooked places, which need to be straightened out. And I imagine that John may have been referring to crooked criminals who are living a life of lawlessness and maybe thinking that because of their past, they can't get saved. They've, they've crossed over the line and, and, and will never be able to be saved. And they need, to be, uh, you know, they, need to, they need help to understand that Jesus can save the most hardened of criminals if they'll simply repent. John referred to the rough places that need to be smoothed out. And in a societal context, you know, the rough crowd is usually made up of people who are violent or antisocial and that sort of thing. And not that I know anything about that. But uh, listen, there's rough people in the world who need to be smoothed out. And sometimes people of this nature, they're, they're just very sensitive and they're hiding that sensitivity by being, you know, overly violent. Well, sometimes... They need a soft word that turns away wrath. They, they might need just you know, someone to come along and ignore the, the rough exterior and speak to the sensitive interior of the individual. To sum all of this up, listen, there are different ways to reach different people. And it's for this reason that we need the wisdom of God because we don't know. 
We don't know what kind of answer they need to their arguments against Christianity, but but the Lord does. The Holy Spirit can provide us with that information. And it's in Colossians chapter 4 where Paul explains this in this way. He says, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. And then he says this. He says, let your speech always be with grace seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer each one. He says, hey, speak with, with sweet grace and yet seasoned with salt. There's times to be really sweet to people. There's time to be salty. But we need to walk in wisdom so that the Holy Spirit can help us to know which is the time to be sweet and which is the time to be salty, which is the time to be compassionate and which is the time to, uh, to, to preach the hellfire brimstone message. Listen, if you think that Jesus loves you is always the message that a person needs to hear, it's not always, maybe that's the second part of it, or maybe it's the third part of the message that they need to hear. Maybe they need to hear, Jesus is going to judge you and send you to hell if you don't repent. Maybe that's what they need to hear. Or maybe they need to hear, Jesus loves you. This I know, for the Bible tells me so, right? But it's the Holy Spirit. He's the one who is able to give us the wisdom that we need as we go out to share our faith and defend the gospel message. Now, this brings us to our third and final point, because listen, we not only need the word of God to fight for our faith, and we not only need the wisdom of God to fight for our faith, but we also need to worship our God as we go out and fight for the faith. And to explain what I mean by this, let's take another look here at Jude chapter 1. I want to back up and begin reading again at verse 24. Here Jude writes, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. What an incredible way to end this book. Jude here ends this book worshiping the Lord by proclaiming his praises. And as we consider this proclamation of praise found at the end of this little letter, you know, I just believe that the evangelistic drive of Jude is based on the fact that he was a true worshiper of the Lord. He was a true worshiper, and as a result, he wanted to help others worship the Lord as well. Just to be clear, the word worship, it speaks of the reverence and adoration that we ought to have for the Lord because of who the Lord is. Our English word, worship, it's also based on an old English word which was used of those who were worthy. It was a word that, that, that would be stated as worship or worship. And that word speaks of the worth or the dignity or the glory or the honor or the praise of the one being worshipped. In this way, we see how Jude was moved to worship the Lord as he considered the way that we should defend our faith. And I want to take a closer look at this this proclamation of worship, beginning at verse 25. Again, he says, To God our Savior, who alone is wise. That word wise, well, it's translated from a Greek word which was used in reference to Greek philosophers. They also used the same word in reference to Jewish theologians. They would use this word wise to speak of the sage elders within a community who had acquired incredible knowledge and wisdom along the way. The same word was also used in a philosophic sense of those who are able to form the best plans because they have a great amount of knowledge, but then they're also to employ the best means for accomplishing the plans because they have wisdom as well. 
And seeing how God alone is able to provide us with the wisdom that we need in, in, in our evangelistic endeavors, well, Jude here wraps up this epistle by reminding his audience that the Lord alone is wise. You don't know how to reach people. I don't know how to reach people. I'm not going to write a book and say this is the, the fail-proof plan. We don't have that kind of wisdom, but God does. Because God, our Savior, alone is wise. I want to consider again how Jude puts it here in verse 25. Again, he, he declares to God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty. That word glory is translated from a Greek word which was used in reference to the excellence, the preeminence, the dignity, and the graciousness of God. Then there's the word majesty, which is translated from another Greek word which speaks of the magnificence and the grandness of God. And from this, we can see how Jude here, he's worshiping the Lord by acknowledging God's excellence, his preeminence, his dignity, his magnificence, and the grandness of his graciousness. How incredible is that? Not only that, but there in the middle of verse 25, Jude refers to the dominion and the power of the Lord. And that word dominion, it not only refers to rigged voting machines, but, but before that, you know, it's, it's a, a word translated from, from, a, uh, from a Greek word which was used in reference to supremacy and superiority. God alone has dominion, meaning he, he alone is supreme and superior over all of creation. And that word power was translated from a Greek word which was used in reference to the intrinsic authority that enables the Lord to rule over all the governments of the earth. And as Jude considered the supremacy and the superiority and the authority of the Lord, he was moved to worship. He was moved to, to, to present this proclamation of praise so that he could worship the one who has divine dominion and almighty power over the entire creation. Finally, I want to consider how Jude worshiped God for his immutable, or in other words, his unchanging nature. Notice again in verse 25 there, he declares, To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and and forever. Amen. I love this because Jude here is helping us to understand that the character of God, it's immutable. It's unchanging. God, our Savior, is both now and forever the one who alone is worthy of our worship. And the reason why is because he is now Always and forever, the all-knowing, all-powerful, majestically holy God. And what's even more is that the deity of Christ Jesus is also the same yesterday, today, and for how long? Forever. You know, there's never going to be a day in the future that we consider something that Jesus did or said and just, you know, just look crossways at him and think, What? What were you thinking, Jesus? Never going to happen. Happens with people here on the earth. You know, you, you think you know someone and, and, you, and you think that you've got their character dialed in and, and you think it'll never change and next thing you know, they're eating tofu. It's like, what? You know, they start singing at karaoke bars. It's like, what are you doing? I, I thought I knew you. Never going to happen with Jesus. 
You will never sing at a karaoke bar. Praise the Lord. I don't know about tofu. There might be tofu in heaven. We don't know yet. But uh, Listen, God our Savior alone is worthy of worship because he alone is immutable, never changing, always perfect. And he will always be worthy of worship forevermore. With all this in mind, it's important for us to realize what we mean then when we talk about the spiritual discipline of worship. Because listen, most Christians tend to equate worship with singing praise songs. We, we think that this is, this is a synonymous statement, you know, that we worship the Lord and we sing his praises, right? And, and in many ways that is synonymous, but worship is so much more than just singing songs. When we show up and corporately sing the praises of Jesus Christ, yes, we are worshiping him. And yet worship extends beyond the songs that we sing about our Savior. You might not know this, but listen, when you spend time praying to God, praying in the Holy Spirit, that is worship. And the reason why is because we're saying that God is worth this time to spend praying to him, seeking his will. And so praise is worship, praying is worship. You know that serving is worship? When we spend time serving the Lord, we are worshiping him because we're saying he's worth this time. He's he's worth this investment. You know when we give money to support the work of the ministry, that is worship? We are worshiping God with our finances, saying that he is worth whatever we're giving to him. When we live a life where we're saying everything we do should be an act of of worship to God, I mean, everything within the biblical boundaries of what is right becomes an act of worship, and that includes evangelism. Evangelism is an act of worship. And the reason why? Well, it's because those who set out to share their faith with unbelievers are simultaneously encouraging others to see how worthy our God is. We're worshiping the Lord through evangelism by helping others to see that God alone is worthy of worship. And it is the highest form of love because evangelism has everything to do with loving God enough to obey him so that we can help others to love him also. It's the fulfillment of the greatest commandments, to love God and to love our neighbor. If I'm telling my neighbor who doesn't believe in God about God and the salvation that we find in Jesus Christ, that is loving and it's an act of worship. We're helping others to see the wisdom, the glory, the majesty, the dominion and the power of our infinitely immutable Savior, Jesus Christ. If you truly want to worship the Lord, share your faith. Contend earnestly for the faith as we try to lead others to Jesus Christ. And as we help them to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, we help them to also see that he alone is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory as our hearts are filled with exceeding joy in Jesus Christ. That being the case, we should take a moment to examine our own motivations for why we want to defend the faith. And the reason I'm pointing this out is because there are Christians out there who study apologetics simply because they love to argue with unbelievers. 
That is one reason for why some Christians study apologetics. They love to argue with unbelievers, and they like to win the arguments. As a matter of fact, they're more interested in winning arguments than they are with winning souls. And listen, if this sounds like something that you struggle with, then I encourage you to remember the the way that Jude here is concluding this letter by refocusing our faith on the magnificence of our Messiah. That's right. The disciple who began this epistle by encouraging Christians to contend earnestly for the faith is the same guy who then concludes this letter with a word of worship by reminding us that our motivation should be based on the worship of God and not on arguing with unbelievers. You see, the Lord loves those unbelievers and he wants to save them. He wants to use us to lead them into his love. So do you think that he wants us to turn around and just go pick a bunch of arguments with people online thinking that this is the best way to you know, somehow convince them to, to come hang out with argumentative Christians who are going to yell at them all day long? And it just doesn't make sense. They ought to see us worshiping the Lord in our evangelism, excited about the Lord as we share the love of God with them. With that, we should take a moment to ask, am I worshiping God as I evangelize? With this question in mind, I want to consider one more, uh, one more section of Scripture that we find in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew here is recording uh, the moments uh, when the, the Lord gave the Great Commission to his, um, his disciples. It's Matthew chapter 28. It's beginning of verse 17 where Matthew writes this. He says, when they saw him, We're talking about the disciples of Christ shortly after his resurrection from the grave and just before his ascension into heaven. They saw him, and according to Matthew, they worshipped him. Ah, but some doubted. So Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Here in these verses, we find the disciples of Christ. They see our risen Redeemer, and many of them began to worship him. And while many were quick to worship the Lord Jesus, Matthew tells us that there were still some who were doubting. That being the case, you know, the Lord began to deal with their doubts. And how did he do this? But to say, all authority has been given to me. Where? In heaven and on earth. Everywhere. All authority belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, he alone is worthy of worship. Because remember, worship speaks of worthship. And who is worth more than Jesus Christ? No one. Do you believe that all authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth? And, and I'm, not, I'm not asking a philosophical question here, but a practical question. Do you really believe that Jesus has authority over you? I mean, do you? Is Jesus your Lord? 
oh, we love Jesus as Savior. We love the free fire insurance. But is he your Lord? Do you submit your life to his authority? And let me ask the same question, but a little bit differently. Do you go into the world and make disciples? Because it's the same question. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, go. Go make disciples. If you're really submitting to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're also going and making disciples. So do you really submit to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ? And do you worship him through evangelistic endeavors? Those who want to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth must acknowledge that Jesus has the ultimate authority over our lives. And if Jesus truly has the ultimate authority over our lives, then we ought to be worshiping him by actively obeying his command to go into the world and make disciples of all the nations. And as we make disciples uh, by preaching the gospel message of Jesus Christ, then we're called to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what we did yesterday there at the lake. Are you a part of this plan? Are you living in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ? And if so, then it's time to learn how to earnestly contend for the Christian faith as we attempt to help others embrace the one who is always and forever all-knowing, all-powerful, and majestically holy. Now, as we begin to wrap up this study, I just want to encourage you in closing to remember that we've been called to fight the good fight of faith. This will, of course, include times when you know, we have to engage in debate and, and, and as we earnestly contend for the Christian faith, which has been once and for all delivered to the saints. And with this as the goal, I encourage you to remember that those who want to properly fight for our faith, well, we need the Word of God. You see, it's the Word of God that helps us with the divine instructions that we need. So that, we, so that we can properly defend our faith. And those who want to properly fight for our faith, we also need the wisdom of God. We, we don't just need the knowledge that comes from God's word, but we also need the, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to guide us so that we know how to use that knowledge in our evangelistic endeavors. And finally, those who want to properly fight for our faith, we need to make sure that we're motivated by the worship of our God. In other words, we need to make sure that God our Savior is the one who has all authority in our lives. And as we submit ourselves to his authority, he will help us to to worship him because he alone is worthy to be worshipped. And as we worship him in our evangelism, he will help us to earnestly contend for the faith as we begin to lead people into the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and for how you use it to keep us on course with your perfect will. And now, Lord, I pray, help us to leave here today committed to walking this out. Lord, help us to to not just be hearers of the word, but help us to be doers also. And help us, Lord, to reach the unbelievers around us. And help us to reach them in a way that is reflective of your love and your wisdom. Guide us, Lord, we pray, so that we know how to reach each person according to their needs. 
Lord, I pray that uh, as long as you tarry and as long as we're here on the earth, help us to be the salt and the light of this earth so that others might come to faith in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.